job they did, such composure even through the technical difficulties, I tell you, thank you. If you got your Bible with you this morning, let's go to John chapter 14. The title of the message today is Draw Near Through the Holy Spirit. That's our focus this year is drawing near to God. John uh, James 4, 8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Uh, we understand that in this relationship with God, we can get nearer to him. And really, that's the goal for every Christian is just to draw closer to God each and every day and each and every step of the way. Uh, this morning, we take our text from John chapter 14, the gospel of John, verses 16 through 26, where Jesus is speaking and he says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost... Whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to begin by acknowledging that you are God, the one and only, the high and holy. There is none other, there is none even close to you. All other would-be gods are the inventions of Satan's deception and the product of men's imaginations. We confess that you are the only true and living God, and we confess and believe that you are one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is our desire today, Lord, to understand what you revealed to us when you were on this earth, and you opened to us uh, the veil of heaven to show us that the Holy Spirit would come to live inside of us as believers. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to clearly articulate what you have said about the Spirit's indwelling today. And may we learn how that we can draw nearer to you through our relationship with the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These words were spoken by Jesus to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. As you read through the Gospel of John, we understand that beginning in chapter 13 and going through chapter 18, it all happens 
on the night before Christ's crucifixion. It's the most extensive description of what happened that evening. Matthew gives us a little snapshot of the Lord's Supper and the Passover, and so does Mark and Luke. But John gives us this extensive insight as to the conversations and the things that Jesus said to them. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, and it is in this text of Scripture and in this section of Scripture in which Jesus begins to expound and explain upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus' short time on earth is coming to an end and he's preparing his followers for the major transition that is to come next. As you think through the big picture of Scripture, you understand that there were these transitional periods that came. As we look throughout the Old Testament, we know that the first major transition was that Messiah was going to come. Well, think about the preparation that God made. He started with Moses giving insight as to who the Messiah is, what he would be. And he gives installments along the way, 1,400 years before, 1,000 years before, 700 years before. Isaiah talks about him. The Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi 400 years before, saying the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And so God was preparing his people for a transition. Jesus is doing the same thing. He has had a short time on earth. Now he is getting ready to transition back to heaven. And he wants to prepare his followers for what comes next. We need to set this in the framework of redemptive history so that we understand exactly what is going on. We don't want to just come in here and put a spotlight on this section of scripture and try to understand it. We need to expound out and look at the surroundings and understand that this is, this is in the context of redemptive history. What God was doing in Israel, what he's going to do in the church, what God was doing through the law, what God's going to do through grace, what God uh, was uh, doing as his people people were in sin and then how he brings redemption to completion. During the incarnation of Christ, God was closer than he had ever been before. In, in, in fact, look back to the way John begins his gospel and listen to how scripture speaks about this incarnation of Christ. It says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we see Word capitalized there, alerting us uh, to the fact that this is speaking of someone or something significant. Now, it goes on to talk about uh, John preparing the way, but it concludes with this statement in verse 14. And the Word, the same Word that was with God, the same Word that was God in verse 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here's this major transition in redemptive history when God takes on human flesh and comes to planet earth and lives among the human beings. And John says, we beheld his glory. It was as of the Father. We saw it and we experienced it. Think about it. For the first time in history, God takes on human flesh and he comes to live on the earth. 
We think back through scripture and we realize that in the garden, the voice of God comes to Adam in the garden. We look back at scripture and we see that an angel of God appears to certain people. At times, God appears in a burning bush. Other times, he, he appears as a, as a person for just a little while, a Christophany. But never before has God actually became a man and lived on planet earth. Theologians call this the, the hypostatic union. It is when two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, are combined into one person named Jesus Christ. To grasp how close God was, they, uh, when he was with them, just listen to how John describes it in his old age. And I'll just quote it for you or read it for you. John writes in 1 John 1.1 about Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. And so as we're thinking about this major event when God comes to earth and becomes a man, one of the eyewitnesses who was there was John, the writer of the Gospel of John, the writer of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the writer of Revelation. And he says, hey, look, uh, we, we were close enough so that we could see him with our own eyes. We could hear him with our own ears. We could touch him with our own hands. Feel the impact of what John is saying. He's saying never before was God so near to us. Truly, it is a phenomenon in history. Again, think how it fits into the big picture of things. Mankind had been separated from God by our sin since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and chose to sin, they brought a rift between God and humanity. The prophet Isaiah describes our situation this way. He says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That's the condition of lost humanity. And when we are born into this world, lost in our sins, we are separated from God by our iniquities. Our sins have hid his face from us so that he will not hear us. You and I have to understand that that is the desperate situation of every human being that has ever been born onto planet earth. They are estranged from God. We're born with a sin nature and then we take up the practice of sin as soon as we are able to carry out our own will. The chasm of separation created by our sin was so vast and so deep that it was utterly unbridgeable and unpassable by human effort. I don't know if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon but perhaps you imagine that you are an explorer in years gone by and you're making your way through the desert. You didn't quite see this in the distance because it was not a mountain peak. It was a gorge. It was a ravine. But then you come up to the Grand Canyon, even the nearest part that Evil Knievel tried to jump with his motorcycle. And you realize that there's no way for me to build a bridge across this thing. 
Let me say I have no, no human way possible. I can't, I can't find rocks big enough and boards long enough to create a cantilever bridge. I, I cannot throw a rope across this thing to, to establish a connection point that I can get across. It's unbridgeable. I, I just can't, cannot bridge it. And then you think, well, maybe I can pass it. And, and you look down on that sheer rock face of some 2,000 feet and you realize... I can't, I can't scale down this, and if I could, I couldn't scale back the other side. Now, I understand that there's paths in the Grand Canyon, and you can walk through it. I get that. I'm just telling you it's the closest representation I can give you of this impassable gorge of sin between us and God that was created when Adam and Eve sinned. We cannot, from our human side, build a bridge across. We cannot pass it. It is unbridgeable. It is unpassable only God could do it only God could bridge that gap only God could pass that difference only God could be the one who makes a way across now pay particular attention to what I am going to say next the work of salvation and reconciliation involved all three members of the trinity let me say that again. We understand man's lost condition. We are separated from God. There's nothing that you and I can do to get across. I mean, we can get back and get the biggest running jump that we can, but we're all going to fall short into that chasm of sin. We're not going to reach God. Only God could build that bridge to us, but the work of salvation and reconciliation involved all three members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is the sovereign authority. He is governing by his immutable law. God is righteous. He has a righteous law. It is unbending. It is unmovable. It is unbreakable. He cannot break his own law. He governs by his own righteous law. That is the Father. He is the sovereign authority. He is the one that we will stand before. He is the one who had the judgment throne in which he judges the world as the sovereign authority. And then we have God the Son who is the substitutionary atonement, sacrificially fulfilling the requirements of the law. Here, God becomes a man, takes on human flesh, so that he can walk in our shoes, so that he can live a sinless life, so that he can do what we cannot do, which is always please the Father. And then he goes and pays the extreme, excruciating price for sin, not his sin, but for our sins, and he makes a substitutionary atonement. He becomes our substitute. God the Son does that. And then God the Spirit is the sealing agency. S-E-A-L-I-N-G. Personally inscribing the law of God in our hearts. Not only does the Bible say that he seals us until the day of redemption, which was a, an imprint, if you will, a wax seal that was on a document, but it also says that he wrote God's law in the tables, the fleshy tables of our heart. So when we think about how man was reconciled to God, how God did this work, we have to understand it involved God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is the sovereign authority, the Son is the substitutionary atonement, and the Spirit 
is the sealing agency. All of this is important in understanding our text today. Because in the verses that we read, Jesus speaks about himself as God the Son. Jesus speaks about the Father as God the Father. And Jesus speaks about the Spirit. All of them active in this work of redemption and reconciliation. Jesus goes into his most extensive teaching on the Holy Ghost in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, and John chapter 16. Up to this point, we haven't heard much about it from Jesus. He makes reference to the Spirit. We see the Spirit active at his baptism. We see those types of things. But now Jesus is going to teach his disciples something about the Holy Spirit. By the way, let me take this opportunity to remind you that my calling is a calling to be pastor and teacher, preacher and teacher. Last week, you got the preach. This week, you're going to get the teach. And so it, it, it may not be as loud. Somebody said, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And a kid said, I think it's volume. <laughs> and so I, I do need you to, to engage with me this morning because we need to talk about this stuff. We need to understand what is going on here. What does the Holy Spirit do? What is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? How does he work in our life? And, and when we understand that, then we can understand how we can draw nearer to God through the Holy Spirit. In, in teaching Jesus, uh, teaching about the Holy Spirit, we learn that we can get even nearer to God than when Jesus walked on earth as a man. Right? That was unprecedented. God was never as near before Jesus came to earth. John said, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. But yet, Jesus tells us, that God's going to get even nearer when the Holy Spirit comes. That's astounding. I mean, what happened when Jesus came was unprecedented. Now this takes it to a whole nother level. And so you and I have to understand that we have an opportunity to be close to God like few people have ever had in human history. Let's look at this text. John chapter 14 Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. That's important. The words of Scripture, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God. Every single word was inspired. Not just the thoughts, not just the ideas. God didn't just give the ideas to the writers and say, hey, you fill in all the words that you want. No, God inspired them with the words. And Jesus is speaking here and John is recording it. And what Jesus said was not, I will give you a comforter. He says, I will give you another comforter. That word, another, indicates that it is one of the same kind. Jesus being a comforter or an advocate or a paraclete in the Greek, Jesus says the Father's going to send you another one, different but the same. Well, how can it be different but the same? Only if there is a trinity. The Holy Spirit is God, just like Jesus is God, but he's a different person of the Godhead. He's the Spirit. Jesus is the Son. And so the first thing that we understand is that this is another one like Jesus. He is a member of the Godhead and that the Father will send him. That word, comforter, I think has caused a little consternation for some people. When we think about a comforter, we think about somebody hugging us. We think about somebody caring for us. We think about somebody consoling us. But they use that word because it is, was the best English word to encompass the robust uh, uh, a definition of the Greek word. 
In the Greek, it is a compound word, parakletos, which means to call along one's side, if you will. And so in some ways, we understand what the comforter means. That comes from being near. And so Jesus says, the Father's going to send you another comforter, one like me, who's going to come to your side. That word was also used in the legal realm. It meant advocate. It was one who came to your side and to your defense. Just like an attorney might defend you in court and speak for you before the judge. In the same way, the Holy Spirit does the same thing. He is God's advocate in our heart. He is pleading God's case and calls in our heart. But he's also our advocate with God. He is communicating to the Father on our behalf. And he does that, listen, From a close proximity, he is the comforter, he is the paraclete. But then Jesus goes on to say this. He uses a word that needs to get our attention in verse 16. It says, the comforter that he may abide with you forever. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you might want to underline that word abide And then you would go down to verse 17 and you would find the word dwelleth, for he dwelleth with you. And then you would go down to verse 23 and you would find the word abode. We will come unto him and make our abode with him. And then you would go down to verse 25 and you would find the word present. These things have I spoken unto you. Uh, being yet present with you. And you would draw a line connecting all of those terms because it's all the same Greek word. Abide, dwell, present, or abode. It is the idea of being present, being there, making your home in that place. And so what Jesus is telling us about the Holy Spirit is he's going to come make his home with you. He's going to abide with you. For how long? Forever, it says. He goes on and says, he's going to dwell with you. He's going to live with you. He's going to be your constant companion with you. By the way, Jesus says, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Father and I make our abode with you. And so we have God abiding with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, just as I have been present with you, in the same sense, this comforter, this Holy Spirit is going to be present with you already we're getting the language of nearness are we not I mean Jesus brings God near to us because Jesus is God and then Jesus says there's going to be another one who comes like me who's going to come beside of you and abide with you and dwell with you and make his abode with you but here is where it gets even better at the end of verse 17 Jesus tells us who this comforter is in verse 17. Even the Spirit of Truth, capital S, Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. If we're unclear about that, we look at verse 26, the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Verse 17, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, just like Jesus did. But watch the next phrase. And shall be in you. Oh, 
That's where it reaches a whole nother level. That's why we say that the Holy Spirit of God is bringing God even closer to us because they did abide with Jesus. For three and a half years, they have unrestricted access to Him. They get to walk with Him and talk with Him and camp with Him and, and work with Him and serve with Him. And I mean, they've got this, this unrestricted access and they have made their abode with Him. But you know what? They were always companions or exterior now Jesus says God's going to send the Holy Spirit and he's not just going to walk beside of you he's not just going to sleep in near proximity to you he's not just going to be at the table with you he's going to live inside of you the New Testament makes reference to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when it says that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which we have of God, and that He is in us. And so here's this teaching that Jesus is saying, and He's saying, hey, look, I am going to go away, but God is going to send another comforter, and He's going to be with you, and He's going to be in you. Can I show you something interesting? In chapter 16... Jesus is coming back again to this subject of the Holy Spirit. And he says something that if you're paying attention, you're going to say, that does not sound right to my ears. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So listen how he's setting up this statement. He, he is saying, he is, he, is, he is validating it before he even speaks it because he knows that it's going to sound odd to their ears. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. What I'm about to tell you is truth. What is that? It is expedient for you that I go away. What? How is that possible? How is it possible that it's good? Expedient means good. It means it's for your best interest. How is it in your best interest that Jesus goes away? I mean, wasn't it in our best interest that he came? Uh, didn't it change everything when God became a man and came to planet earth and lived among us and God got nearer than ever before and now Jesus says, let me tell you something, I'm going away and it is for your benefit that I go away. How is that possible? Well, he explains. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yes, Jesus had to come. The Holy Spirit couldn't just come by himself. God had to come in a human body so that he could be the substitutionary atonement. But once he fulfilled that purpose, then Jesus goes back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he says, that's for your good because now... The Holy Spirit will come and he'll not just be with you, he will be in you. Can we just let that sink in for a moment this morning? We have God living in us. Now, let me tell you something. I'm getting older and I'm tired. And I've been working this week trying to get ready for Jack's graduation party. I tell you what, I am not the young man I used to be. I know that's shocking to you. It is to me. And there's a lot of days that I, I don't feel like I've got God in me. I mean, I just don't feel like it. Like, wouldn't I feel better if I had God in me? 
wouldn't I be less tired? Wouldn't I be sharper? Wouldn't I be less cranky? Wouldn't I be more magnanimous? I mean, I don't know, fill in the blank. I, you, but you can't deny the truth of the word of God that God said, hey, look, I'm moving inside of you. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Spirit lives inside of you. Not a spirit from God. Not the force or emanation from God. Not just the power of God comes in your direction. You don't just get plugged into God like an extension. God actually comes to live inside of you. That is astounding. That is amazing that God has taken up residence inside of you and inside of me when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. The Bible says that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you and you are sealed until the day of redemption. Hey, that's an unbreakable seal. I am telling you, I'm so glad that I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit because if it was up to me to hold the bond between me and God, it had been broken a long time ago. I mean, if it was just a life-saving device that was thrown out to me into the ocean of sin and it was up to me to hold on until God pulls me into the ship of heaven, I'd have lost my grip a long time ago. But when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God moves in permanently, irrevocably, irreversibly. I don't know how, I don't fully understand why, but once you get saved and the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, you can never lose it because you're not the one that's holding it. He is. And like Jesus said in John 10, if you're in my hand, no one can pluck you out. If you're in my hand, you're in my Father's hand. Nobody can pluck you out of my Father's hand. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals us in our salvation. So I want to lay all that theological groundwork for you and I to understand that the Holy Spirit is essential to our salvation, that he is the sealing agent of our salvation, that he is the permanent indweller in our lives. Once we get saved, there's no chance, no matter how good or how bad we are, that we can lose the Holy Spirit. But we can draw nearer to God or we can draw away from God, even with the indwelling Spirit in us. So... If you would, follow me to Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5. I've just got a couple of minutes here, so I need to, need to get directly to it. Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5, we find that Ephesians tells us that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit or we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Or if you're where I'm from, it's the Holy Ghost. That Holy Spirit stuff was fancy. We were just Holy Ghost people where I grew up in West Virginia. Problem is, the Bible says both. Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit means the same thing, so we'll say both interchangeably. First, notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. So here's a word of warning. Paul is writing to believers, and he's writing to them about their behavior, and he's talking to about people who had stolen, people who have anger problems, people who have these other issues going on. And he says, hey, watch what you're doing, because you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. You can displease Him. You can hurt Him. You can sadden Him by your 
behavior. Grieve not. But then he also reminds us that we're sealed until the day of redemption. You're not in danger of him moving out. As bad as conditions get, he will stay in residence. But the Holy Spirit of God can be grieved by us. And a short few verses later in Ephesians chapter 5, 18, we find the other end of the pendulum swing. And that is, verse 18, be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. This is an important teaching about the Holy Spirit of God. You and I have to understand that once we receive the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, we can either grieve Him by what we do, say, think, or we can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God by how we yield our lives to Him. And so depending upon how we respond to the Holy Spirit will determine our nearness to God. I'm so thankful that we can never get so far away that we lose our salvation. But let me tell you, there's a lot of Christians that are living on the grieving side and not the fullness side. And I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be judgmental. I say that out of a heart of love to say that every believer ought to be able to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit to know the joy of what it is to be spirit-controlled. You see, because if you're a Christian who is grieving the Holy Spirit of God, you're not going to feel the joy of your salvation. You're not going to enjoy the abundance of the Christian life that God wants you to have. You're going to feel pretty low a lot of the time. And that was never God's intended desire for you and I. He wants you and I to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're talking about terms that are not nebulous. We can't say, well, what does that mean? It means everything or it means nothing or I don't know what it means. And so there has to be some baseline as to you and I can go by to say, well, what, what grieves the Holy Spirit and, and what contributes to the fullness of the Holy Spirit? And I would take you back to Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, I would need two more hours, perhaps three more hours, to, to trace out everything about the Holy Spirit of God. you understand that, right? And, and I'm pretty sure that none of you all would want to stay for the next two or three hours. You didn't pack a lunch. You didn't prepare for that. You drank too much coffee. I mean, I know we, we just don't have that type of time on our hands. And so there's some stuff that we're not getting to. But let's, let's, let's at least draw this baseline. I'm saved. have the Holy Spirit of God. I can either grieve Him or I can be filled with Him. I don't want to grieve Him. I do want to be filled with Him. This is far away. This is near to God. So how do I know if I'm grieving or if I'm in the condition of being filled? And I would point you back to what Jesus taught us about the Holy Spirit for our baseline. Let's just look at it briefly. Back in John chapter 14, verse 26, here's the first major teaching that Jesus says about the activity of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you 
all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. So let's, we're just going simple here. We can't go deep, but we're going simple. The Holy Spirit of God teaches me. So I have this spirit in residence, and one of his primary jobs is to teach me the things of God or the things of Christ. I can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by not being teachable. You ever met anybody who wasn't teachable? You ever been unteachable? We all have. So we understand that there's a response to his teaching. He's going to teach you. He has been teaching you. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, he's teaching you the things of Christ. And you're either going to reject that or ignore that, and you're going to grieve him. You're going to sadden him. Or you can receive it. You can be taught by it. And guess what? You are yielding to him, and you are experiencing the feeling power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so, what am I doing with the teaching that the Holy Spirit gives? Now, the other area we find in chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, that is, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Teaching is positive. Well, here's the way, walk in it. It's a positive. It's saying this is the way of Christ. Walk like Christ, live like Christ, do like Christ. Conviction is a negative. That's when we've stepped off the path, when we've stepped out of line, and the Holy Spirit then is calling us back. Hey, you're, you're, you're out of bounds there. Come back. Kind of like the referee at the ball games when the player steps out of bounds. They are called and alerted to come back in bounds. And so we see this in John 16, verses 8 through 11. When he, that is the Spirit, is, truth will come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to the, my Father, you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Can I take a straw poll here today? How many of you all have ever experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. We know what it is. Now, we may not be able to define it. We may not be able to sketch it out. But we know what it is. It is, it is God in us saying, you shouldn't have done that. Stop that right there. Don't think down that path any further. Don't click one more time on that link. We know what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is. It is that restraining compulsion inside of us that comes from God and not from self. Now, again, you and I, we're, we, we've got options. I'm convicted. I'm kind of just lost my temper, man. Let me tell you something. I got mad, and I am mad right now, and I want to keep going in my madness, and I want to tell them what for, but there's a prickling in my heart that's saying, Justin, you need to calm yourself down and act like Jesus. And I've got a decision to make. Do I respond to his conviction and say, yes, Lord, I don't want to, but I'm going to be restrained by you? Or do I ignore that beckoning call and go on with my rant or my expression of anger, whatever it may be? So there's a decision. One of them is going to grieve the Holy Spirit. The other one is going to fill me with the Holy Spirit. See where I'm going with this? And so here's the third and final factor, and that is that the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. We find this in John 13 through 15. Howbeit when he, 
the Spirit, now notice the personal pronouns. The Holy Spirit's not an it. He's not a power force. He's a person. He's the third person of the Godhead, just like God the Father, God the Son. Here we have, he, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for ye shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and show it unto you. The Holy Spirit is constantly trying to guide you and I through life in the path of truth. Hey, this is truth. That's not truth. Look over here. This is the true side of it. No, stay away from that. That's the false side of it. And by the way, this truth, as we saw last week, is not just restricted to the truth of God's Word, although He guides us in that. It is truth in general. It is the truth about worldview. It is the truth about our positions on all the cultural issues right now. The Holy Spirit is trying to guide you and I as Christians into the truth. And you and I have a responsibility of response. Either we accept what the Holy Spirit is telling us is truth or we reject it. And let me tell you something. There's a lot of cultural pressure on Christians to ignore the Holy Spirit's guidance into truth. Well, I know that that's probably what I should follow, but if I do that, man, I'm telling you, I got people be mad at me, and I'll be the outcast, and I'll be the only one in my class who, who feels this way, and I don't want to be the lone voice in, in, in this debate about this stuff. Hey, hold on a minute. Are we going to follow his guidance, or are we going to carve our own path? Because one will take us into the grieving side of the Holy Spirit. The other will fill us with the Holy Spirit. And so... We have to realize that one draws near, the other draws away. And if our desire is to draw near to God, then you and I have to be responsive and receptive to the Holy Spirit of God. We need to be tender to the Holy Spirit of God. We need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. We ought to begin our day by praying and, and yielding ourselves to Him. I give myself to you, O Holy Spirit. Lead me and guide me. Help me to be sensitive to your teaching, to your conviction, to your guidance. Help me always to make the right choice when you are the one who is speaking to me in that soft, still voice in my heart. Help me to follow you. So I just want to ask you a couple of questions before we pray. Are you resistant or are you receptive to the Holy Spirit? Resistant or receptive? Do you invite or do you ignore? All right, you might say, well, I'm not resistant. Yeah, but do you invite him in? Do you say, God, I need you to guide me today. I need your Holy Spirit to lead me today. Help me to follow your Holy Spirit. Do we invite him in to be the leader of our life? Are we submissive or are we stubborn? Do we yield and say, yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do, or we're like, no, I've got rights up in here. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to be treated that way. Do we obey or do we disobey? If I can put it in the vernacular of 2020, are you drawing near or are you spiritual distancing from God? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of us.
I don't understand how he stands it. As I think about the conditions that he must live in in this cesspool of human sin, it must be, it must be grieving to him many, many days. Father, I pray and ask that as believers, we would become more sensitive to your Holy Spirit in our lives. May we not just treat him like the forgotten member of the Trinity, but may we, Lord, alert our hearts and our minds to his presence in our life every single day. May we make a concerted decision that we are going to yield to him in all matters that he convicts us and guides us and teaches us in. Father, I pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that we would live lives that allow him to fill every area of our heart and life, that there would be no places in our life that is off limits or the door is locked to him. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for grieving the Holy Spirit and that when he is grieved, I pray that we might sense it and that we might repent of it and that we might be refilled and restored to a nearness to you. Our heart's desire is to be near to you. And we know that you have covered the greatest amount of ground. The lion's share of coming near to us. And that these are just small baby steps that we can take that will draw us near to you. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to step in your direction. And that we would step in the direction of the fullness of the Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you